Hello, everyone. Uh, we're going to be continuing today in our study on Ephesians. And so today we come to a, a passage that has created considerable confusion amongst Christians through the years. Many Christians ignore the slave and master terminology in these verses. One reason is because we don't have slaves and masters in our culture, right? Uh, another reason is because the topic is very sensitive in our country with a horrible history of race-based slavery. In addition, Americans generally despise the very thought of being a slave to anyone and don't even like when anyone in authority tells them what to do, whether government, police, parents, pastor, employer, and so on. Uh, we just fundamentally believe that no humans should be slaves. It is a plain fact that many reject Christianity on account of passages like this. So I believe it's important to understand what the Bible teaches about these things, about slavery, about slaves and masters. Is it permitted? Is it okay? Is it bad? Is it evil? Um, it's, it's a bit of a complex subject, and we're going to try to get into it today. I can't get into all of it, but hopefully you will be provoked to think through this message. Um, practically, there is a truth also here about how we should fight injustice in our world. It's very different than the way that the culture goes about fighting injustice, and we'll see that in a few minutes. I think what sometimes people don't understand who have problems with the Bible, especially what it says about slavery, is they just don't realize in Bible times, uh, slavery was a very broad idea. It was a very complex thing. When Americans hear the word slavery, in most cases, we think of the race-based the race -based slavery of early America that was so evil. Or we think about sex trafficking around the world. But slavery in Bible days happened in many different forms. Uh, the essence of slavery, of course, is that a person was owned by someone and worked for someone without wages. But in some cases, this was an arrangement to pay off a, a debt. Uh, sometimes bond servants were welcomed into the family. They were lavished with privileges. And when you study the Bible carefully, you find that it permits certain kinds of slavery but condemns other kinds. Here's an explanation of slavery in Bible times that shows the complexity uh, found from a ministry called Compelling Truth. It says this, Most slaves were foreigners defeated in war. Enslaving them was an alternative to killing them outright or letting them go free to cause problems later. In times of hardship, it wasn't uncommon for a family to abandon a newborn baby. There were no social services or ministries to care for them. And many of these babies were rescued and sold into slavery. A child born to slaves was automatically a slave. But if the parents were freed slaves, their children had all the rights of a Roman citizen. 
An impoverished family could also sell a child, sounds terrible, as a slave to raise money for the rest of the family. I don't know if they drew straws. That sounds horrible. But often the transaction would uh, benefit the child as well, I guess, as he would be more financially secure in the household that he was in. Also, if someone had an extensive amount of debt but no children to sell, he or she could be taken into debt bondage and forced to work off what was owed. It was also possible for someone to sell himself into slavery. An ambitious man with a few connections could gain access to education and the contacts necessary to be successful once he earned his freedom. Those are just a few of the different ways that slavery played out in the ancient world. I do think this passage in Ephesians can be applied to our relationships in the workplace. Um, A lot of sermons, when they get to this text, they just kind of go there and talk about employers and employees. And I, I think, yeah, it definitely applies to that. Like some of us might have a boss and we can put these principles into action and just in, in the sense of doing our best uh, for our employer, uh, this is a good thing. We should be trustworthy workers. Uh, maybe our boss isn't so nice or fair about things. Uh, this passage of Scripture in Ephesians reminds us that what we do for our boss, we do for Jesus. And it teaches us to be, to be patient. In God's eyes, it counts as service to the Lord. Some of you might be in a position over people, and these verses can be applicable uh, just to warn us not to threaten our employees. Uh, We should always treat our employees with respect, people under us with respect, with love. They're made in the image of God. Scripture condemns abuse, oppression, and exploitation. If you are an owner or boss or even a, a department manager or shift supervisor, Be kind, be fair, be the kind of boss that you would want to have. So again, there's whole sermons about that, but I really just want to come back to this giant elephant in the room that slavery seems to be permitted in the Bible and not overtly condemned. That can be definitely confusing, right? Again, as Americans, we recoil at this. We tend to think, Uh, How could God want anyone to be a slave? Surely God wants everyone to be free. Slavery is part of the fallen world. There will be no slavery in the future kingdom of God. And these are the strong ideas that suddenly surface when we come up against a passage like we're reading this morning in Ephesians. As American Christians, we imagine that If we were alive during a time when slavery existed, we would immediately start a crusade of abolition. We would give our best energies to ridding society of any sort of system of slavery. We would publicly condemn slavery as inhumane. We would rebuke Christian slave owners for their evil and might even help slaves to run away. And all this would be perfectly conducive with our Christian faith, especially as Americans. So it's hard to separate what is our American 
ethos and what is really the, the way of Jesus in these matters. So we got to probe deep. It's interesting that, you know, if it's the right thing to do to combat slavery, then, I mean, these are just honest questions. Then why didn't Jesus do that during his ministry? Slavery definitely existed in the days of Jesus. In my research this week, I read one place where it said that uh, es there's estimates that one-third of the Roman world were bond slaves. Um, that's, that's intense. The Jewish people were, of course, very familiar with slavery. They were in bondage to the Egyptians in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They were also taken captive, for example, in Babylon for 70 years. But not only does Jesus not condemn it, he flips it upside down and redeems it. He, in fact, uses the idea of slaves and masters to describe our relationship with God. And he uses uh, slavery as really not just a frequent metaphor, but his most common metaphor for describing our relationship between us and God. I mean, we like father and son, but actually slave and master was much more used by Jesus. And of course, it was something that was very understandable to, to the people in that day. But he even goes so far to say that the greatest in the kingdom of God will be the servant or slave, it's really the same Greek word, of all. Paul then developed this idea further as he identified himself, like at the beginning of Romans, as a slave to Christ, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And he says that we are slaves of righteousness. That's Romans chapter 6. Leaders in the church, deacons, were called servants. Or again, the Greek word is doulos, it's slave. There are also verses in Scripture that condemn the idea of slavery or the kind of slavery that we saw in America, in early America, for example, consider this verse in Exodus uh, 21, 16. This is powerful. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's strong. This is an SBC author on how the Bible condemns slavery. Uh, so this is not mine. This is words from another author. But he says this, without condemning slavery, the Bible actually condemns virtually every system of slavery that we know. If a system of slavery is built upon any notion that the slaves are inferior to the masters, then that line of thinking stands condemned in Galatians 3.28. If a system of slavery favors one's countrymen and disfavors foreigners, then it collides smack into Leviticus 19.33 and 34. If a system of slavery involves any form of sex slavery, and most do, then it runs afoul of biblical sexual morality. If a system of slavery keeps slaves in line 
by means of threats or outbursts of anger or in any way denies due process and justice to a slave, then it's a violation of Ephesians 6.9. If a system of slavery involves greedy masters, then it violates everything the New Testament says about the possession, about the relationship Christians should have with material possessions. So like he said at the beginning, the Bible actually condemns virtually every system of slavery that we've seen on the planet in our day and throughout history. And we should remember that Paul did say in the New Testament to slaves to stay slaves, if that's what you are, if you're a bond slave, stay that way. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. 1 Corinthians 7. If you were a slave, it was against Roman law, think about this, to run away. Um, it wasn't like, oh, you get a little fine for trying to take off. It was a serious offense. I, I read that even harboring a slave for more than 20 days could be punishable by death, by crucifixion. Christianity spread very fast in the first century. And many slaves, many bond slaves came to the Lord. And if the apostles started a crusade condemning slavery and encouraging slaves to run away and for Christians to harbor runaways, the efforts would have resulted in a massive, bloody revolution, essentially sparked by the followers of Jesus. So these matters are really com complex. And I'm sure the apostles thought through all of these things, like how, what's the best way to go about dismantling slavery? The apostles instead sought not to kill slavery or combat it overtly, but to change its very fabric is the best illustration I could think of. It's like the stingray, you know, the beautiful stingray, but it's a very dangerous um, creature of the sea. Some of you might remember the, the show, The Crocodile Hunter, Steve Irwin, and he was, he was actually killed by a stingray that just stabbed him in the heart. Kind of a sad story. But then you go to the mystic aquarium and there's a giant circular pool and you see all of these uh, little kids around the pool and they're, they're petting the stingray. Why? Because the dangerous part or the sting, stinger, what I don't know how the animal exactly works, but um, was removed and it made it a completely different thing. That's the best illustration I could think of. I was really racking my brain trying to come up with something, but that's kind of what Paul was doing. That's what the gospel does to slavery. It really turns it into something that, it, something completely different in its very fabric. Here's the reality as Christians as well. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves don't have rights. They are bought and owned. And the Bible is very clear that we've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. So slaves, I'm a slave to Christ. 
I do what my master tells me to do or else I should. I cannot just go and do a thing or go here and go there and just do whatever. I've, when I came to Christ, I gave up my rights and I laid them at the feet of Jesus. He is my master. And the truth is, we are all slaves. If we're not slaves to Christ, then we're a slave to sin. So instead of trying to abolish the system of slavery, Paul harnesses it for good to advance the gospel. He saw it as something that could cause the light to shine brightly. Now, it's always been a fact that men who are enslaved are typically, in almost all cases, resentful of it, right? And they only obey their masters because they must. If they don't, they'll be whipped, beaten, whatever is going to happen. Consequences. If they had an opportunity to get away with not working hard, because their master maybe was on a trip, they would do it. If they knew they could escape, they would. So what Paul calls for here is a completely different approach, upside down from the human tendency. Basically, he was saying, don't run away. Stay. Serve your earthly masters the way you would serve Jesus himself. In other words, work hard. Give of yourself cheerfully and not grudgingly. Love deeply. Do everything without complaining or grumbling was the message Paul was giving to slaves. It's the same spirit, right, as Jesus telling people to go the extra mile. You, you have to realize that the Jews deeply resented this that there was a, a law that basically said that Jews, if a Roman soldier came up to them, and they, the, they had to carry a burden, maybe a, some kind of thing that the Roman soldier was carrying that was heavy, and the Jews were forced legally to carry that burden a mile. No matter what they were doing, even if they were busy, even if they had their own load to carry, they had to do it. Well, the Jews deeply resented this. Jesus flips it on its head, and he said, you know what? Don't be resentful of that, in so many words Jesus was saying. In fact, go the extra mile. Carry the burden with joy and cheerfulness, and then when you get to the end, keep going. Serve this enemy of yours. I mean, if you really think about how that would play out, how that would affect a Roman soldier. This Imagine a, a young follower of Christ carrying the burden, not grumpy, not resentful. And you can tell a person's heart. The Roman soldier would be baffled, right? After the first 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards. And there's, just, there's a joyfulness in, in the follower of Jesus's face and maybe even some little conversation that happens and, and then they get to the end and he keeps going. You can see how that, that kind of gospel love could 
begin to break down defenses in a Roman soldier, or at least get him to go home and talk to his wife and say, I am so confused. Um, I've had Jews carry my burden that mile for years, and let me tell you about this, this young Jew that carried my burden today. It was just like nothing I've ever seen. And in this way, the gospel of Jesus is advanced. Jesus knew what he was doing. Because the advance of the gospel always trumps our personal rights and our preferences. It's not about that. Obviously, Jesus is the ultimate example of that. Uh, you know, when Christ came, it wasn't about where does he want to live? What does he want to, you know, what would be most comfortable for Jesus? Uh, it, all of that was secondary. He laid down his rights, submitted himself to the will of God, and even subjected himself into the hands of sinners and to the point of crucifixion, right? Because why? For the advance of the gospel, for the purposes of God. More to say on that, but in 1 Peter it says, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter goes on to say that this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And we are called to suffer as Christ did, to follow in his footsteps. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, when Jesus suffered at the hands of men, he did not threaten. And we're to follow that example. Jesus did not retaliate. You can see how this um, teaching in, in the gospel, in the gospels, or in the, in the New Testament, is just so different than the way the world operates, right? We're especially, again, in America, we're just taught not to put up with anything from anybody. You know, we just get in their face and stick it to the man and just, you know, we're, we're just taught that. We love that. We love that story. It plays out in our literature and in movies all the time. We just, we just sit back and cheer, like, from, from, with our Christian you know, with our Christian faith, we're like, yeah, give it to them. Like, we love that story. And, and you got to remember, too, the context of Jesus coming on the scene. The Jews were oppressed and exploited and abused and just, they were completely controlled by uh, the Roman Empire. And in times, just treated brutally unfair. And so everyone wanted the Messiah just to come and, you know, what, just kick butt. I mean, just turn things upside down and, you know, start a military campaign and put the Romans into the dust. You know, that's, I mean, the Jews were looking for that, just the Messiah to show up on the scene and just squash their enemies. And Jesus shows up as this meek, gentle, guy who's telling them things like, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for them. Um, go the extra mile. It's not your job to retaliate or to show revenge. That's the Lord. will do that in his timing. But what I want you to do is love 
your enemies. Because again, Jesus was all about advancing this gospel message and changing the hearts of people rather than establishing some kind of physical kingdom on earth to crush all the enemies. That will happen eventually, of course. We know that. It's another sermon. But let's think about just for a moment how this would play out. Now, it's a, it's a human, it's human nature that when men are given power, especially in the legal ownership of, an, of another person, they take advantage of it and become harsh. It brings out, I would say, it brings out the worst in men when they own humans for their own selfish purposes. So Paul, again, kind of flipping this on its head, exhorts masters to be completely different. He tells them specifically in this text not to threaten slaves. In other words, don't tell them that if they don't cooperate, they'll be whipped or beaten. Be different. In essence, he was saying, serve your servants. Love them like family. Be generous to them. Let them share in the wealth of the family. Treat them like family. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. Pay attention to their dreams and desires. Help them to fulfill God's purposes for their lives. Invite them to the table at dinner. Care for them when they were sick. Give them time off. Remember that you have a master, Jesus, who will tell you exactly how you must treat those who are under you. Remember that there is no partiality with God. That means that even though from an earthly standpoint, you are a master over a slave, in the kingdom of God, there are no such distinctions. God does not favor one over the other. Both master and slave in Christ are equally valued and are of great worth to God and are both slaves of Jesus Christ, their master. Now, my opinion is that Paul was being a bit sneaky in all this or wise in his dismantling of slavery. He was aiming to change it so radically from the inside out that it really would become something totally different from what it was. It seems that any master in Christ who followed Paul's teaching would soon find himself at the end of the trail making the position of a slave voluntary. I just don't see how you could follow the teachings of Jesus and Paul down the trail and not come to a place of realizing this is my, my, my dear brother and I should give him the opportunity to be free if he wants to be free. But this extravagant love and trust that masters would, in Christ, begin to show towards servants would, in turn, cause slaves to want to stay and to be devoted. This whole new way, upside-down relationship between slaves and masters would become a powerful demonstration of the gospel in the culture of that day. Well, this comes out more clearly than any place in the Bible in the short letter of Paul to Philemon. 
It's a beautiful little letter, and I'm going to read part of it in a few minutes to end my message. But just to give you a little bit, Philemon, had a slave named Onesimus who seems to have run away. And then, you know, he wasn't a believer in Christ, Onesimus. And so he took off. We don't know all the details, but you can kind of read in between the lines and you get this idea that he, he ran away and then somehow met Paul in prison. Paul was in prison in Rome. And Paul becomes a spiritual father to Onesimus. And we're not sure if Onesimus was in prison or if he was maybe a low-level worker in the prison. We're, we're not really exactly sure. But regardless of which it was, the relationship was so close between Paul and this runaway slave called Onesimus that he calls him his child. He says formerly he was useless, which means he wasn't a believer in Christ. And that was a play on the meaning of the word Onesimus, which means useful. But now Paul says that he is indeed useful both to you and to me, meaning to you, uh, Philemon, who is the master of the slave, but also to Paul. And so Paul sends him back and tells Philemon that he is sending his very heart back to Philemon. It's so tender. And uh, this is like the most powerful demonstration of uh, how God turns the systems of slavery inside out and makes it into something beautiful. Paul says that all of this may perhaps be the orchestration of the Lord, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more, more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So Paul takes the system of ugly slavery and turns it on his head. And I want to end with, I just think it's so good. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read about, about maybe two-thirds of it, a half to two-thirds of it. But I just think it's so good um, just to hear this letter because I think it just speaks, it just speaks without expounding on it. So here's a piece of this letter to Philemon. Again, Philemon is the, the master who had the slave who ran away named Onesimus that Paul discipled when Paul was in prison. Well, he says this, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, speaking to Philemon, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my, and here's this term of affection, my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, Paul says, he was useless to you. And I think that means he really wasn't a good Christian. and Maybe it was very difficult uh, as a slave. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me because he's a believer. 
I am sending him back to you. So it's interesting, right? Paul's sending this slave back to the slave owner. Sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That he's kind of hinting at the sovereignty of God here. That you might have him back forever. No longer, this is so beautiful, no longer as a bondservant, a slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me your very life. (laughs) I think that's funny too. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I really strongly encourage you to um, just take some time this week and read the book of Philemon. It's only 25 verses. And really, really think about this idea. Again, I think that uh, part of the reason why it's important to understand what the Bible teaches about slavery and how it permits it, but how it condemns it, and how it, how Jesus' teachings flip it inside out and turn it into something different is so that we, for one, know how to respond to people when they have issues with the Bible. A lot of people just throw out the Bible as though it's just this old thing that you know, now we're so smart and so wise and so enlightened, uh, and we, you know, we kind of throw out the Bible as though it, it's out of date, and a lot of people do that. So we need to have intelligent answers and give reasons uh, for why we do believe in the Bible. But I also think it gives us some wisdom on how we can approach injustice in our world. It's not always the way that the world operates. In fact, it's often very, very differently. I think that we should be part of movements in our day, in our generation that are fighting injustice. And we are. We partner with all kinds of different things in the city. And, but we, we just have to realize that our, our partnership with the, with the movements in our world that are fighting injustice overlap only so far. And I think often where it does overlap is the identification of an injustice being a wrong thing. Like, that's evil. You think that's evil? Yeah, we think that's evil too. (laughs) I think where the trouble comes is in, okay, now what do we do about it? And, I mean, on one extreme, people will kill to fight against injustice. 
And so we're not of that spirit. You know, we, we need to be fighting injustice in the world. We should be all about it. We should be on the forefront of fighting injustice in the world. However, we should be doing it the way our God wants us to do it. We should be doing it with the spirit of Jesus. He knows how to overturn injustice. And so we have to trust him that his methods are going to be the most effective and most wise methods. Um, so, so much more to say. This is just scratching the surface of this massive topic. But hopefully it kind of gets you thinking and talking and reading and digging into Philemon and other scriptures this week. Um, yeah, that's it. We're going to do another song or two of worship. Uh, so let's, let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for uh, the wisdom of the scriptures. We pray that, uh, Lord, that you would give us the grace to, just even in the practical sense in our circles, to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies. Uh, when we see injustice in our world, that we would approach it with the methods and the strategies of Jesus. Um, Lord, help us to help us to be like you. I think that's really what we want to do. And Lord, I pray that you would sort of uh, extract the wrong ways of thinking that have mixed into our theology. Lord, we don't want to have like Christian ideals mixed in with, you know, just the spirit of American revolution. You know, God, it's so easy to, to do that. Lord, I pray that our theology and our thinking would be pure. I pray that you would just refine us and that the mind that we have, the thinking that we, we have would be the mind of, of Jesus. Even if it's totally counterculture and counterintuitive. Lord, help us to be like you in every way and help us to overturn injustice through the power of your love and through the grace of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.